0: On this episode, Patrick McLaughlin, a Senior Research Fellow and Director of Policy Analytics here at Mercatus, chats about the latest economic situation report with Dr. Bruce Yandel, who is a Distinguished Adjunct Fellow here at Mercatus. They discuss Bruce's rollercoaster economy, subsidies and tariffs, and how they fit into the bootlegger-baptist theory of regulation, predictions for the remainder of 2023, Bruce's reading recommendations, and much more. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Patrick McLaughlin, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I'm here today to do another podcast with Bruce Yandel. He has recently released another quarterly economic Situation Report, which you can find on the Mercatus website. Bruce, of course, as you probably know, is a dean emeritus at Clemson University, longtime contributor to Mercatus, and longtime author of this report that we'll be talking about today. So, Bruce, thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Patrick, same here. Good to see you. And there's always plenty to talk about, isn't there?
1: Oh, you keep us on our toes with your reports, that's for sure. Let's go ahead and jump into it. You begin your economic situation report by running through a rather unfortunate and, and long list of shocks from starting with the 2008 recession to COVID, the war in Ukraine, and more. So give us a few of your top line takeaways on the effect that these shocks had on the economy and the ways in which we've responded to them.
0: Patrick, as I mentioned in the report, when I wrote that first sentence describing the series of shocks, it shocked me as I thought about our economy. That is, the sentence, we go back to 2008, what is now called the Great Recession, which was a very severe recession, and then we start folding into it, COVID, reactions to COVID, a shutdown economy. Monetary efforts to push the effects of the shutdown in the economy, an economy getting back on its feet, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, disturbing world food markets, energy markets. Then a walk away from world trade that began to bubble through this process, partly going back to the, to the 2008 recession. Where there were a lot of blue collar workers that were thrown out of their jobs. And so the idea that globalism and globalization was beneficial, even though at times painful, ceased to be accepted. And now not just the United States, but industrial economies worldwide seem to be in the mood to put rocks in the harbor, to pull up bridges, to become independent. And then along with all of this has come massive fiscal policy intervention as well as monetary policy intervention. And I guess the first thing that I mentioned as I was thinking about this series of calamities, and it's sort of hard to find anything comparable when we look at data going way, way back There is so much intervention on so many levels that we even cease to use the word intervention anymore. If we say intervention, it implies that we have some kind of normal economy, private sector, and government comes in and intervenes. But now government is endogenous to the economy. It's present at practically every margin. And it makes it hard to discern what is real, if that word has any meaning anymore, from what is artificial. What is the result of stimulus versus what is the result of creativity and entrepreneurial talent. So, in a way, this was this paragraph was sort of an awakening for me as I thought about these things, Patrick.
1: Constant. And consistent intervention has sort of become the new normal. And these, these conditions that you're describing, you, you paint them as contributing to a roller coaster economy. And in particular, a roller coaster economy. When you look at the money supply, that's a, a steep roller coaster in, in, in both directions, I guess up and down. But starting in the first quarter of 2020, You want to talk a little bit about what happened to the money supply back then and maybe what's been going on since? Sure, that's a good
0: place to start on the topic, Patrick. i visualize data. It just happens to be my way of looking at the world. When I say visualize, I do a lot of graphing and I use a lot of Federal Reserve economic data. They have a wonderful website for people like me who like to keep track of data, and with the website come graphics tools so that you can map various time series individually and you can map them into each other. And so now to the point, if we were looking at one of the popular measures of the amount of money working through the economy called M2, which includes bank deposits, savings accounts, smaller CDs, Brokers accounts. But if you were looking at M2 and say, well, let's call that money and we're going to look at the growth of M2 in our economy on a year over year basis. And let's, for the front of it, let's go back to 1950 and map that whole time series. Well, if one does that, you're going to see something that occurred in 2021, unlike anything that you will see going back to 1950. I mean, you could go on back into World War II. And so we have something we haven't seen before. There was about a 25% year-over-year growth in M2. And those most of us as citizens could feel it because it was a check that came into our bank. Practically every adult citizen received something directly or in the mail a check from the federal government, and that shot him to to the sky. Then, concern about inflation, which followed. And by the way, we probably should say, Patrick, that the word inflation means inflating the money supply. The word does not mean rising price level. It has become that. I mean it's taken on that meaning, but what we are observing there with that huge growth in M2 is inflation of the money supply. And the forecast always is that if you inflate the money supply, all of that money will get out and chase goods and we'll see price level effects about twelve to eighteen months later. So with concern about inflation that begins to show in the CPI sense of the word, The Fed began to hit the brakes, running off money, money supply plummets, growth plummets. And so that's the big roller coaster that I was thinking about when mentioning the roller coaster economy. That is, we were having greater than 20% growth, and then we get greater than 20% deceleration all within about 12 months. And there's not anything like that in our history in our monetary history. Uh, And so, you know, as we look back now, we got some good numbers today, as a matter of fact, on CPI growth for May coming in at 4.1%. It was at 9% in June of 2022. CPI growth year over year was 9% in June 2022. It's now down to 4.1. It has been falling sort of systematically ever since. And by the way, if we look a year back, money supply growth has been falling consistently 12 to 18 months earlier than the CPI change. And So we've got a roller coaster. We can make some forecasts about what might happen, but we are living in a period that is different from something we have experienced in the
1: past. BPI growth at 4.1% now, what, what would the Fed like to see that number be? Is that where they'd target 2%? That's right. They have not let go of their 2% target.
0: And the Fed, they're meeting right now, with one of their Federal Open Market Committee meetings, when they make decisions about whether to nudge rates higher, hit the brakes some more, or what, and some people expect they will pause a little bit right now, and they might take a lap and sort of celebrate a number that is headed in the right direction. So, two percent is the number they would like to see, but there's a you know there are always complicating factors. Patrick, and maybe that leads to an employment nudge for economists, if not for others. <laughs> By the way, you know, the Fed has 400 economists. Just imagine that. Uh, if people get a little bit tired of listening to two economists talk, say, well, if how would you like to spend your life in a room with 400? Well, not many people would vote for that. I don't think, but, uh, but nonetheless, back to the point, the 2% target is still in the plan. The complicating factor that I was thinking of is, what is money? Is cryptocurrency money? Is it a different kind of money from M2? Is it counted? Or is it an additional way for people to transact? And should we be counting it? It's not controllable in the same sense that other monies are controllable by the Fed, and I think there's a lot of action underway, particularly from the Securities and Exchange Commission, to sort of put a squeeze on cryptocurrencies. Maybe, for many reasons, one of the reasons might be to be able to exert greater control over the money supply, and maybe over inflation, but there is a complicating factor that is out there. Another complicating factor is artificial intelligence. We have no way, I think, of being able as economists to measure the impact or the level of activity or probably most anything meaningful about what artificial intelligence is doing, but we do know that artificial intelligence is being used extensively. It is contributing to productivity increases. Those productivity increases can bring down inflation or at least contribute to bringing it down. So we have a very lively economy with not only a lot of federal intervention into it, but a lot of invention and creativity still alive and well. Thank goodness.
1: You're one of the few people. Maybe, maybe many economists do this, but generally people don't dig into the minutes of the Federal Reserve's meetings. But you did. You looked into the the March 20th and 21st meetings, and I think you were you were looking to see what the what the Fed what the Federal Reserve's economists, the 400 economists, the brain trust there. Think about where the economy is going and their rationale behind their their economic outlook, and you, you do cut them some slack, but on, on on the one hand, but on the other hand, you kind of wish for something more from from the Fed. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yes, and in a way, Patrick, I wish for more from the Fed itself, that is from those major voices that we think of the Federal open Market committee, the key leadership. I wish for a lot more from them in as much as we seldom hear any discussion of money supply and money supply growth and its effect on the economy. In fact, I cannot recall an interview following a Federal Open Market Committee meeting when Sherman Powell makes mention of the growth of the money supply and the fact that Occasionally, there is a relationship between that and inflation. That is just not discussed. I wish it were. I just wish it were an item on the agenda. And so when I read those minutes, what the Fed economists were expressing concern about was the effect of the run-up in interest rates on regional banks, like Silicon Valley Bank, like Republic, that were having to shut the doors, basically, because a run on deposits that occurred. And when I say small regional banks, those are very large banks. They are not just large in, in, in the likes of Morgan, but the economists were expressing concern about what might be happening as interest rates run up, then the assets held by banks required to be held by banks in federal government securities and government agency issue, like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. When you own bonds, we all know this, when you buy a bond at a time when the prevailing interest rate, let us say, is 5%, and you pay hard money for that bond, and it's going to be throwing off 5%, and the interest rates of the world go up to 10%, Your bond isn't worth what it used to be. Its value has to fall so that when its value falls, its yield to the next owner will be 10%. And so you've just sustained capital losses. Whether you take them or not is another question. Or whether you mark your assets to market is another question. If you don't do either of those, you're sort of whistling through the cemetery, hoping that rates will come back down and you will not have to declare bankruptcy. So in effect, the Fed economists were having a discussion, a short discussion in those minutes, about that factor and how continued efforts by the Fed to hit the interest rates breaks and run it up would then put more banks at risk in a mark-to-market bankrupt sense. Now, they didn't say this. But in a sense, the Fed itself is bankrupt. It's been a hedge fund operator now since 2008. That is, the Fed went out and bought a lot of underwater bonds in order to strengthen the commercial banking system. And through time, those bonds began to pay off, and it looked like a pretty good thing. But now, as interest rates have gone up, the Fed now, by law, pays interest to banks on excess reserves, and there's a little better than $2 trillion sitting there in excess reserves. It's a 100% sure thing for commercial banks. They get a 5% yield on that. By having to pay that out now, as they have cranked interest rates up, the Fed's positive cash flow has disappeared. So instead of being able to send money to the treasury every quarter, they send an IOU, which sounds like a business that is in danger of having to close the door. Now the fed's not going to close this door. There's no such thing as bankruptcy for the fed or for our country, but it just is a, it just points to the dramatic effects that are playing through our entire economic system right now.
1: Let's let's stay on this topic. There's, there's some other stuff in the report that hopefully we'll have time to get to. But while we're talking about the, the Fed, is there a chance that the Fed could be going too far in its attempts to, well, in raising interest rates or slow down the growth of the money supply and get us to the point where we don't have the, the Goldilocks landing, so to speak, but instead a, a much harder landing?
0: And I think it's certainly possible for this reason, Patrick, if we go back to the discussion we were having about the growth in M2 and a relationship between that growth and growth in the price level, that's a relationship that has a pretty strong statistical basis through time. You might not want to bet your life on it, but you might not mind betting on it in a casino sense. The M2 growth hit zero in December last year. So in December of 2022, M2 growth turned zero. It has been negative ever since. So the money supply is at a lower absolute level than it was. In December, and it has been falling ever since. Now, then, you'll say, "Okay, there's about a year and a year and a half lag between that and what we would expect to see in CPI-led inflation." And so that says, "Okay, about a year to a year and a half from now, all the things being the same, we should expect inflation to disappear." And then you might say, "Well," Well, what does that mean? Well, that means most likely that we will have a recession for at least six months, maybe not a severe one, but we will have a slowdown, and the slowdown will come because the cookies are already in the oven. They taste like M2. They're M2-flavored cookies, and they're baking, and there's no way to turn the oven off. So we've got in the works a slowing economy. Now back to your question, if the fed continues to hit the brakes and run the interest up, interest rate up in an attempt to slow the economy, when the monetary side of the economy is already slowing it, then we might get a double effect. So yes, I think it is possible that you could get too much fed oriented restraint in an economy where the money supply is already growing at a negative rate.
1: That's, I guess, probably scary for most listeners. It's certainly scary for me. We can we can still hope for the best. I guess the good thing about the Fed controlling the interest rate is it's easily changed, or, or is That's it right. so easily changed? They They can turn around in a hurry. We've right. seen
0: it happen. And it can happen again, and and it gets back to sort of our opening conversation. We do live in a roller coaster economy. And so, you know, right now we're sailing down and it might get hard, but next thing you know, we'll be sailing up in the air and having a hard time counting the cash that's coming into the bank, but it won't be worth as much as it was before.
1: Well, there's other government interventions, of course, that are not so easily changed, namely regulations. So you do talk about this as, as you do in most of your reports, you talk about regulations and their, their consistent buildup. In this case, there's some specific examples you, you give talking about subsidies and tariffs and the related, uh, actions, or I guess the actions that, that, that came out of the Inflation Reduction Act, really. So. When you talk about these in your report, these subsidies and tariffs coming out of this act of Congress, you, you mentioned the bootlegger Baptist theory of regulation. So what are the origins of this theory and what does it tell us about the Inflation Reduction Act and the electric vehicle regulatory landscape?
0: Yeah. Well, the, the bootlegger Baptist theory is, is, has been around 40 years now. I did a piece that showed up in regulation magazine back in 1983. At the time, I was at the Federal Trade Commission, and prior to that, I had been working in government with a small group that focused on regulatory reform, and and I had become aware that people in the private sector, as we called it then, who came in to see us were not always, in fact, most of the time, they were not adamantly opposed to regulation. They might want to tweak it a bit, but Many times they were there to say, well, let's keep it, but let's make it fit a little bit better than it fits right now. And so if we were talking about safety regulations, for example, OSHA, or if we were talking about automobile emission regulations coming from EPA, there would be two groups of people that would be supportive of the rules, broadly speaking, the environmental community, if it was EPA, and consumer advocates, if it were safety and health. And then there were the industries themselves that were affected, saying, it's really not all that bad. In fact, it could be helpful, might run some of those no-good mom-and-pop shop manufacturers out of business, and they ought not to be in business in the first place. We would hear conversations like that. And so now as we get to the Inflation Reduction Act and the huge subsidies that are included in it for electric vehicles, which may be justifiable in an environmental context with respect to reducing carbon emissions. You can play with those numbers. If you look at the fine print, and that's where the bootlegger-Baptist theory helps to put a little light on the matter, it's the fine print, not the gold face, but the fine print. The fine print says that These subsidies in large will be available to electric vehicle manufacturers located in the United States who use batteries produced in the United States. If you don't use batteries produced in the United States, the subsidy level you will receive will disappear, head towards zero. But in addition to that, in order to play in this subsidized field and get the benefits associated from the IRS, you have to employ union workers or pay what is called prevailing wages and prevailing wages, also terms of a term of art that refers to what union workers get paid. To be a player, You've got to work with organized labor. And so organized labor then is playing the role of the bootlegger in the bootlegger-Baptist story. The environmentalists are there saying, we need electric vehicles, let's put an end to global climate change and all the horrors that may be associated with it. That's the moral appeal. And the bootleggers say, and by the way, let's do that and employ a lot of union workers. And so we see that one there. President Biden just made an initiative instituting tariff increases on aluminum and steel coming to the United States, which is something his predecessor did when he was first in office also. And in in announcing his rule for tariffs on aluminum and steel, President Biden says that the tariffs will be modulated so that the dirtier the steel production from another country, the higher will be the tariff. And so our tariffs will be like emission fees that other producers will be hit by. That keeps out the foreign steel, and it also does something to make the environmental community feel better And by the way, Mr. Biden says, this is a promise I have made to those good union workers who have been my supporters. And so there are the bootleggers again. Patrick, most recently I brushed up against artificial intelligence and testimony before Congress a couple of weeks ago. Some of the daddy rabbits in that business who have done phenomenal things in a scientific sense expressed concern about this Pandora's box that is now open and urged Congress to regulate so that you don't just want any old cat to come into the artificial intelligence world. You want to try to stay with the good cats and regulating may be a way to make things better. So it was sort of another like a Baptist example, at least it brought it to my mind.
1: Make sure those fly-by-night operations don't enter the space. Yeah. Well, as always, I do want to conclude by asking you about your reading recommendations. One of the books you highlight is the late Nicholas Philipson's book called Adam Smith, An Enlightened Life. And you said it taught you things about Smith and his life that you didn't previously know, which I find amazing. What were some of those things and why are they significant?
0: Well, Patrick, this I guess the the older I get, the more I realize how huge the pool of ignorance is. All of us, you and all the rest of us, spend our lifetime trying to fill in and become more knowledgeable. And we certainly can, but more often than not, as we become more knowledgeable, we find ourselves in another room. Uh, Where we don't seem to know where the door is, let alone how to turn on the lights. But the interesting thing that for me that I learned from the book about Adam Smith was that Smith had a lifetime ambition to develop a theory of man, a theory of human beings and how human beings build a life and survive in an unfriendly natural world. And His notions about trade, which, of course, represent sort of the Bible to economists, the wealth of nations, shorthand, or even theory of moral sentiments, those books become, for most of us, what Adam Smith was about. But he wanted a bigger story. He wanted to explain human beings, how they organize, how they're able to survive, how do they get cooperation. And then trade becomes so important to his story that the spotlight focuses on that and away from his broader search. So, in a sense, I guess I had the feeling, well, Adam Smith really wasn't an economist. He certainly was in terms of laying a foundation that became what we call economics. But he started out with a much broader search in mind. And probably for most of us, for you, me, and most everybody else who spends a little time in this field, the longer you spend in the field, I think the more you become interested, maybe even intrigued by broader questions of human behavior that seem to require interpretations beyond just economics which sheds a lot of light so it was a big pursuit on his part that was interesting to me and by the way something else that i found fascinating he enjoyed rubbing elbows with ordinary people maybe at a local tavern on a regular basis and getting out and talking and listening to people talk about what's going on in the world he seemed to be happy to get outside his outside the halls of Ivy as we use that expression. And and just talk to ordinary people and listen to them.
1: That might be something worth considering for many modern day economists, getting outside of our own bubbles. You know, I said I was going to conclude with that question, but I realized I didn't get your prediction for the second half of the year. We're almost halfway done with 2023. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of touched on the topic but we we were talking about the Fed's approach. Let's talk about the Bruce Yandel view. What do you think is going to happen to wrap up for the second half of the year?
0: Yeah, yeah, we've talked about a lot of the ingredients that have been dropped in the pot so to speak and I've been stirring that pot trying to determine what the outcome might be and I give it I give an outcome in my report. My expectation is that we will have negative real GDP growth in the third and fourth quarter of this year, 2023, if not then, fourth and first quarter of 2024. By negative growth, I'm speaking of less than 1% negative in that first quarter and maybe a little better than 1% negative in a subsequent quarter before we see positive growth again. That's driven primarily by what I see with respect to money supply growth and the lag therein before GDP gets born and developed. So a slowing economy, but not a dreadful recession like 2008. A little bit of a roller coaster, but not one that'll give you a nosebleed. Let's put it that way.
1: For our listeners, if you want to see what Bruce is talking about, the money supply growth and how it's gotten negative and and how prices tend to follow that, take a look at the report. It is online at Mercatus.org. There's a nice figure showing that, as well as all of the other content we discussed here today. Bruce, I want to thank you once again. It's always my pleasure.
0: Same here, Patrick. Great talking with you today. The Mercatus Policy Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. And for even more, follow us on Twitter at Mercatus and subscribe to the show on your favorite
1: podcast app.